Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Well, um, I should say something about my last podcast with Meg Smaker. As you might recall, Meg is a documentarian who had her first feature-length documentary accepted more or less everywhere, including Sundance and South by Southwest. And then she got attacked by identitarian grievance entrepreneurs and promptly defenestrated by Sundance and the other festivals. And this really was a case of picking absolutely the wrong target. You just have to listen to Meg for about 10 minutes and you realize she's pretty much the last person who should have been canceled for making the film she made. Anyway, she has a GoFundMe page to support her ongoing efforts to get the film Jihad Rehab, now known as the Unredacted, distributed. And um, when we recorded that episode, her GoFundMe had raised $3,000. But at the end of that episode, I asked you all to contribute, if you could. And now Meg has raised over $600,000 in one week. So, needless to say, her situation has completely changed. And it will be fascinating to see what happens next. So thank you all for supporting her. Beyond changing the material prospects for the film, your notes of encouragement, I know, have made a tremendous difference over there. I mean, the outpouring of love and support was tremendous, and it was really, really gratifying to see. I love seeing a podcast guest supported in that way. So thanks again for showing up. And on the topic of love and support, I can't say I received much for uh, tweeting into the Kanye West, I guess now known as the artist, known as Ye, formerly known as Kanye, controversy with respect to his recent eruptions of anti-Semitism. I haven't focused much on anti-Semitism in the past. I think I've devoted exactly one podcast to it out of 300. I've noticed it on the extreme right and the extreme left, obviously. Briefly, the way this breaks down is that on the extreme right, Jews are not considered white, and therefore they fall within the scope of white nationalist racism, with the added spin of various conspiracy theories. But on the extreme left, Jews are considered extra white. They get something like double the white privilege points, so they fall within the scope of anti-white bigotry and activism. So you move far enough left or right as a Jew and you meet fairly stark expressions of hatred. So I've been aware of that, but it's not something that has been a big deal in my life, certainly, and has not been my focus. Kanye's statement on this one podcast, I believe it was the Drink Champs podcast, I believe they've pulled down their version of the interview, but I think it's up on other channels. His remarks went on at such length, and they so assiduously connected all the traditional dots for the anti-Semitic worldview that um, it was fairly breathtaking. I mean, it was really a Protocols of the Elders of Zion-level confabulation about the Jewish control of everything. Unfortunately, there's enough truth in what he said, which is to say there are prominent Jews 
who have made a lot of money in the recording business and in Hollywood and the other sectors of the economy that he was whinging about, it will seem all too plausible in many quarters to say that he's just calling balls and strikes as he sees them, right? This wasn't hatred. This is just the facts. You have an extremely famous, popular, and influential artist truly exploding with anti-Semitism. Many people thought I was reacting to something he had tweeted that got him kicked off Twitter. Uh, No, that's not what I was reacting to. I was reacting to the interview, which was truly awful. Awful as much for the fact that he received basically no pushback from the hosts. And uh, at least in the original comment thread on YouTube, he received nothing but adulation from his fans. And when I tweeted about this, pointing out how despicable it was, what I got back was pretty amazing. You know, I have a fairly thick skin at this point. I don't expect a lot from Twitter comments, but the torrents of hatred and cynicism I received out of Trumpistan were fairly amazing. Some of it was overtly anti-Semitic. Some of it was just expressions of hatred for what I had said about Hunter Biden's laptop. I got some pain from the left as well. People claiming that after all that I've said about Islam, I'm in no position to criticize someone for their bigotry. Obviously, this just voices frank confusion about the meaning of what I've said about Islam. Perhaps I should spell this out once again so it's fresh in everybody's mind because the degree of dangerous idiocy that swings on this fulcrum is uh, is hard to exaggerate. I have said some extremely critical things about Islam as a system of ideas. Uh, I've said extremely critical things about Judaism as a system of ideas. In fact, I even made Judaism to some degree culpable for the Holocaust. That sounds like a neo-Nazi position, if you don't understand what I'm saying. So, I've said a lot about ideas that I think are terrible and divisive and producing unnecessary harm. This is quite different from talking about people as people, especially for characteristics they can't change. If you listen to Kanye's statements about Jews, it's absolutely clear he is not talking about the religious ideas of Jews. He's not talking about Judaism. He's not talking about ideas at all. He's talking about Jews much more as a race. And it's Jews as a race that are the targets of virtually all anti-Semitism. When I talk about Islam, I'm talking about the beliefs of people to the degree to which they believe them. Yes, occasionally I will talk about Muslims because I can't keep saying people who believe in Islam to whatever degree, but it's always clear in context what I'm actually talking about. There is zero xenophobia implied by my criticism of Islam. And what's more, I have said that with respect to immigration, there are no people I would rather have given green cards than moderate Muslims. I said that in response to Trump's idiotic Muslim ban. So you just have to follow me long enough to know what my attitude actually is toward Muslims as people, 
And I've regularly pointed out that there's nobody who suffers the consequences of the idiotic ideas contained within traditional Islam more than Muslims, more than Muslim women and apostates and aspiring intellectuals. Once again, if this is at all confusing, please recognize that criticizing Islam is like criticizing Marxism or Scientology. We're not talking about skin color or country of origin or anything else than the consequences of a specific set of ideas. And what I've criticized in Islam again and again and again, really, I will admit, ad nauseum, are the consequences of specific beliefs about jihadism and martyrdom and apostasy and blasphemy, and none of that entails bigotry against people. And yet I was inundated with moronic allegations of bigotry, even by some well-known people, in response to my criticism of Kanye's absolutely crystal-clear anti-Semitism. Yes, Kanye's bipolar. I'm sure he suffers from that. Being bipolar doesn't make you anti-Semitic. That particular problem doesn't come with ideological content. So this struck me as genuinely new. Having a star of Kanye's size express that degree of anti-Semitism and to have it be celebrated at the level that it was seems genuinely new to me. This is not Mel Gibson on the side of the highway raving at the cops while getting arrested for drunk driving. So it seemed like a cultural moment worth addressing and clearly condemning. And I'm pretty surprised at the people who couldn't quite manage that. Anyway, for my troubles there, I got an extraordinary amount of hatred directed at me, mostly from Trumpistan, which provides further indication, as if one were needed, that there's a fair amount of anti-Semitism to be found there. I suspect this problem isn't going away anytime soon. We'll see what happens if the orange menace runs for president again. And perhaps I'll say something more on this topic at some point. One thing to notice over at Waking Up, we built a live audio feature, which allowed me to do a Q&A live earlier this week. I think something like 14, 15,000 of you showed up for that. That was great. And I think we'll be building out that feature and using it more going forward. So if you follow me on Twitter, you might occasionally see me say, I'm on the app for the next hour. Ask me anything. And hopefully we'll all find that useful. Okay. Today I'm speaking with Timothy Snyder. Tim is a professor of history at Yale University and the author of many books, among them On Tyranny, Black Earth, Bloodlands, and The Road to Unfreedom. His work has received many prizes, and Tim has distinguished himself as a remarkably clear and urgent voice on the topic of fascist and quasi-fascist propaganda, the way in which it seeks to erode democratic freedom globally, and he is especially an expert on Ukraine. And so I wanted to get his point of view on what's happening there in its ongoing war with Russia and its implications for nuclear risk. And in particular, I wanted him to address much of the commentary I've been seeing online from non-subject matter experts, people like Elon Musk 
and the venture capitalist David Sachs, the physicist Max Tegmark, the economist Jeffrey Sachs. There are many people who've been calling with increasing urgency for a reset of our approach to supporting Ukraine. They've been calling for de-escalation. They have been, to the eyes of many, dignifying Putin's claims uh, about the provocations of NATO and NATO expansion. So I wanted to get a clear statement from Timothy about all this. I have no illusions that this is the final word on the matter, but it is, as you'll hear, a deeply informed word, and it's one that echoes many of my far less informed misgivings about what I've been hearing largely on social media from, again, very prominent people who are speaking very much in the vein of what I've called the new contrarianism. You know, everybody with and without a platform is now doing their own research and promulgating their resulting opinions however they can. And the results on many topics is a cacophony of unqualified voices, whether we're talking about COVID or climate change or the war in Ukraine. This is just now the new norm to have anti-establishment voices create more and more noise. And sometimes this is to the good. I'm not saying it never makes sense to do your own research. But there is something to be said for expertise now and again. So I wanted to get an expert on Ukraine to come on the show to give us the lay of the land as he sees it. And that's what I've done. So now I bring you Timothy Snyder. I am here with Timothy Snyder. Tim, thanks for joining me again. Really glad to be with you again. So I've, I've really been eager to talk to you. First, I should say that you, so you were, you've been on the podcast uh, at least once before. I know we spoke about your book on tyranny, which you've recently updated in audio format to cover the war in Ukraine. And I've listened to that audio, and it's really fantastic. So I recommend that people download that. Now, yes, you are a uh, genuine subject matter expert on Ukraine and Russia, unlike many people who are spending a lot of time online at the moment telling the world what we should all think about the war in Ukraine. Before we jump in, can, can you summarize your engagement with this topic? How have you come to know about Ukraine and Russia? Well, first of all, I just I want to I thank you for for, for remembering that. I mean, the, the things that I, I maybe understand about America, I probably had my, you know, I got my intuitions from, from other places. I, I've been working on East European history my entire adult life. I was beginning more than 30 years ago. I went to Kiev for the first time almost 30 years ago. I've been speaking Ukrainian in Kiev and Ukraine for more than more than half my life working in Russian and Ukrainian sources for more than half my life and I've I've been to the country regularly for the past quarter century I've written six books that are of that are Ukrainian history or that bear on Ukrainian history the the most well known of which is probably Bloodlands Europe yeah. between Hitler and Stalin yeah and would I be uh, right to assume that you currently know people who are fighting in this war or certainly experiencing its results firsthand in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean I know I know hundreds of people in Ukraine and I mean just to give one little tiny example on the Monday before the war started I was doing a doctoral exam 
and the the student passed. He has a wonderful, wonderful dissertation. And the next day he signed up for the territorial defense. Everybody I know in Ukraine is involved in the war somehow. A large number of of men and women whom I know are in the army or in the territorial defense. And those who aren't are are generally all doing something, which is of course part of the reason, part of resolves part of the mystery as to why the Ukrainians are winning this war is um, that, that people are so active in civil society looking to fill the gaps that the state can't fill. That's a story which is kind of hard to write, but it's, mm. it's, it's a fundamental feature of, of Ukrainian society. I really want to target a specific audience in our conversation. I, I think we'll take a few passes on, over the terrain to actually get down to bedrock, but I mean, here's what I most want to address, and I think we, I, I know you're going to have to cover a fair amount of, of history before we get there, but what I most want to cover are the doubts and fears of very bright, rational people who, at this point, think that U.S. and EU support of Ukraine has gone too far, right? And that we're running the risk of plunging into something like World War III quite unnecessarily, and that we in some sense, provoked Putin, right? Or at least we're culpable for our own failures of diplomacy. And that, you know, that NATO, essentially, and, and the United States has backed him into a corner and put him in a position where his behavior is now pretty rational and even defensible from some uh, you know, non-sinister angle. And again, you, you'll be familiar with many of the, with much of this, but you know, if, you've, if I look at my Twitter experience, I'm seeing many smart, well-connected people, some of whom have very large platforms, you know, none of, as I've said, none of whom are, are subject matter experts, but they're not dummies. And yet they're speaking as though Putin has some kind of reasonable, you know, as I said, non-sinister claim upon the patience of the world at this point, and that we should step back and get Ukrainians to step back, and that there has to be some kind of path to de-escalation here that isn't an abject capitulation to the threats of a tyrant. And you know, just to kind of round this out, I mean, the cynical take here is that most Americans can't find Ukraine on a map, right, and still can't. And yet many are speaking about the Donbass as though the blood of Ukrainian mothers runs in their veins. And that we've been propagandized to by a a weird union of a neoliberal, neoconservative order, and, and all doubts about the wisdom of this project and the wisdom of going all in on Ukraine is, um, they're, they're being silenced. And, you know, this is all kind of an escalatory ratchet towards something awful, you know, the true awfulness being a proper exchange of nuclear weapons between the U.S. and Russia. So that, I mean, that, that's where I want, I want us to defuse all of that. And I, I know you have to get into some relevant history before we get there, but that's where I, I want to put that flag on the horizon and I want us to, to aim at it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's fine with me. I think you'll probably have to, have to break it up into, into little yeah, pieces. Yeah, I will. Because what you're talking about is kind of, you know, you're, you're giving a take on a bunch of takes which are pretty far away from any, you know, recognizable empirical reality having to do with Russia or Ukraine. Yeah. Or for that matter, the U.S. Or if I could, just, I'll just say a little bit of the of the U.S. I mean, the before we get into the other parts, the idea that the U.S. was expecting this scenario and is somehow behind it 
is um, not only wrong, but deeply colonial. The U.S. expected that this war was going to be over in three days. That was the official American position, and that was the basis for our actions at the beginning of the war. Mm. Very important to understand that the Ukrainians are people who have agency and who have taken risks and decisions. And the risks and decisions that they have taken have in turn affected Russia and America. I think a lot, a lot of the thinking or, or some of the problems in the thinking that you're describing starts from the, starts from the unspoken assumption that places like America and Russia are, are, are real countries and Ukraine is not. And once you start from there, you then have to twist yourself around an awful lot to try to, to, try to understand what's happening. So I think, I mean, that's, that's mm. a basic I would start out with. I think the idea that somehow America is behind all of this is, is, is you know, it might be left-wing imperialism, but it's imperialism because it's overlooking the agency that small and medium-sized countries can have. And it's overlooking the decision, you know, the ethically-based decision that Ukraine's, Ukrainians took when they decided they would defend their country from this atrocious war. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let, let's go back in time, however far back you think we need to go to get to the present. I mean, I, I think the question I would give you to frame this part of the conversation is to describe the, the reality of Ukraine and Crimea and their relationship to Russia. Because, you know, obviously what is being said by Russia and being taken at face value by many critics of our support of Ukraine is that. Ukraine was always part of Russia or has been part of Russia for so long that it is some kind of ahistorical obscenity to consider it its own real country as you just described it to be. So what what is how should we think about Ukraine and Crimea in, I guess it should be separated there and Russia. Well I guess the the first point which is really important is that I mean, I might know more history than other people, and I, I might have interesting things to say in response to your question, and I'll try to say them. But it is actually irrelevant. The, the, the border between the Russian Federation and Ukraine was agreed upon by both parties in December of 1991. Both parties are, are signatories of the basic conventions about uh, involving, involving borders. And it may seem like a really banal point, but history doesn't actually give you a reason for invading mm. someone else's territory. If it did, there essentially is no border in the world, including the American-Canadian border or the American-Mexican border, which you could say is somehow perfectly legitimated or justified by history. That's just not the way that history works. History and law are two different things. And so the, if the, the unspoken assumption here is that if Russia had some kind of historical claim, then it would be okay to invade. But I just I would start by right. by pointing out that that assumption is a hundred percent wrong, and that people who want to make if you want to make that assumption about Russia, you should be saying in general, well, we would like for there to be warfare on every continent except Antarctica, because everywhere in the world there are disagreements about about history, which would then justify war. So I mean, but the, the history is the history is interesting. It's a lot. It's a lot more interesting than listening to Mr. Putin would would get you to think. I mean, the the you use an interesting word, which is always, and always is um. Whenever everyone says always in the in these things, what what is happening is that an imperial claim is being made. It's it's imperial powers who say things like always and never, 
And what they're doing is they're asserting their right to control the forms of knowledge, which get the rest of us to thinking that, wow, there isn't really something there. So in the case of Crimea, there was a state in Crimea, which lasted for six centuries, which is much longer than the United States or Russia um, in any recognizable form. And that, that state existed for two years as part of the Golden Horde, two, sorry, two centuries as part of the Golden Horde, four centuries as part of the Crimean Hanat, which was defeated and eliminated as a political unit by the Russian Empire in the late 18th century. So that's not always, first of all, that's an awful lot of centuries before mm. anything Russian power gets there. It's defeated by a bunch of Ukrainian Cossacks in the Russian service by an empress, Catherine the Great, who's German. And by a state, the Russian Empire, which is, which is um, nationally speaking or linguistically speaking, majority not Russian, that state ceases to exist in 1918 or, or 1917, sorry, and is not the same state as today's Russian Federation. The native people of Crimea, who were almost 100% of the population not so very long ago, were dispersed by first the Russian Empire and then Stalin in 1944. In 1944, the NKVD, the Stalinist secret police, forcibly deported every single man, woman, and child who was a Crimean Tatar, thereby leaving open an awful lot of space for Russians and other people from the Soviet Union to move in. That's 1944. That's not always. In 1956, the Crimean Peninsula, still inside the Soviet Union, was given from the Russian part of the Soviet Union to the Ukrainian part of the Soviet Union. Because there were no longer any Crimean Tatars there, there was no longer a special status for the place. It was no longer an autonomous region as it had been. It was given to Ukraine for the very banal reason that from the point of view of Ukraine, Crimea is a peninsula. There's a land connection, so you can supply it with water and you can use the electricity grid. From the point of view of Russia, Crimea is an island. There's no land connection. But Khrushchev in 1954, when he made this change, dressed it up because of course there's always difficulty with Ukraine and the Soviet Union. So he dressed it up as some kind of great gift from the Soviet Union to Ukraine, and they had lots of celebrations, and they, they printed cigarette you know, packs, and they printed nightgowns celebrating all this stuff. And so then some people now in the Soviet Union remember this as this great gift, especially Russian nationalists. But at the time, it was a purely pragmatic decision. So that's, that's Crimea. The idea that Crimea is always Russian is A, imperial, B, wrong, and C, silences the history of the genocide of its native population. Mm. You know, I really, I mean, the, the history is um, very interesting. And again, you go into it at considerable length in both your, your reissue of the audio of On Tyranny and also in, in a, I believe, a 10-part lecture series on YouTube on Ukraine that people can watch. From your your Yale class, but I, I really love the point you made about the disjunction between the stories we tell about history and the legal and political reality of uh, that enforces any national border at this moment in time. And it's always hard to know where to start the clock, except when you have a treaty or when you have a a border that has been ratified by both sides of that border. That is a a very reasonable place to uh, stop your your way back machine. So perhaps let's start with the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. What's the significance of that for the present moment? And I get you know, if you want to bring the character of Putin into the conversation at this point, that might be appropriate because but you know Putin is uh, very much driving the the show here, and 
it's his decisions that we're living with the consequences of and trying to figure out how to respond to. And he has evolved as a person and as a leader over these last decades. Tell us about the fall of the Soviet Union and how that is setting the stage for where we are now. Yeah. I appreciate, Sam, you're, you're reinforcing the point about law because it really is a very important point. I mean, we can choose to sympathize with anyone we want who is, who is you know, violating law. But you know, as, as a result of the Second World War, as a result in part of Hitler making exactly the kinds of arguments that Putin is making now, the, the principle was, was accepted that there, we're going to have sovereign borders and those sovereign borders are not going to change. And that's a principle which has generally been of great benefit, especially, especially inside Europe. I'm going to start this answer by making a similar distinction between Putin and the end of the Soviet Union. Putin says a lot of things about the end of the Soviet Union now, which he wouldn't have said then. And he says a lot of things now, which people find plausible because he says them over and over again, but which are simply not true. One of them is that the end of the Soviet Union was somehow an American plot. I was there at the time. I mean, I wasn't of any significance, but I was in Washington, D.C. working on foreign policy stuff at the time. I was helping to run conferences at the time. You know, I was, I was in U.S.-Soviet relations was what I did at the time. I was going to Moscow at the time. It was, um, it was American policy to preserve the Soviet Union. And that's, that's clear from the American archival material. It's, it's clear from the open source material of, about Bush's visit to Kiev in September of 1991, which is remembered as the chicken Kiev visit. We were actually trying to hold the thing together. It was the Russian Federation, the country that Putin now rules, which which brought the Soviet Union to an end. And uh, that's that's a kind of fundamental fact which tends to get overlooked in all of this because Putin starts his story from such completely outrageous places, knowing that there will be people out there who will somehow meet him halfway. Mm. But the historical, you know, that's not really how one can you know should treat the historical record. So the end of the Soviet Union. I mean. One thing which is interesting about the Soviet Union is that its very existence is a recognition of the existence of a Ukrainian nation. The reason why the Soviet Union was founded as the Soviet Union in December of 1922 was that the people who founded the Soviet Union, Bolsheviks and cosmopolitans though they were, were familiar from several years of civil war inside Ukraine that Ukra the Ukrainian nation was a real thing. As a result of that, when they won, and they established their larger unit. They made it a they made it a unit of 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 nominal federal republics. So Ukraine actually decides the form of the Soviet Union because of the obvious, even to people like Stalin and Lenin, existence of the Ukrainian nation. And even though Ukraine inside the Soviet Union suffers more than any other republic from from Soviet policies, in particular the famine of 1932 and 1933. There's never actually a moment in the Soviet Union where the existence of a Ukrainian nation is denied. And I, I, I stress this because the phenomenon that we see now with Russian nationalism and Mr. Putin at this point is actually quite radical and fairly new. And insofar as it has a precedent, its precedent is with right wing, is not really the Soviet Union, it's rather with right wing and fascist Russian intellectuals of an earlier, of an earlier period. But the, the, the thing then which is worth stressing, kind of bringing two points together now, is that when the Soviet Union falls apart, it's also taken for granted that the borders of the republics will be the borders of independent states. In December of 1991, um, the leaders of the Russian, Belarusian, and Ukrainian republics meet 
and agree to dissolve the Soviet Union. The reason why it's those three is that those are the three republics which existed in 1922 when the Soviet Union was founded and which still existed in 1991. And so they agreed that the borders as they were would be their borders, at which point these states become sovereign states governed by, by, governed by the, 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 the same conventions that govern everyone else's borders. And those things aren't contested. And uh, Ukraine actually has a referendum on its territory before all of this, and just also in December, in which not only do 90% of Ukrainians, and this is 31 years ago, not only do 90% of Ukrainians vote for independence, a majority in every single region of Ukraine also votes for independence. And in those intervening 30 years, the the drift has been, and I say this with great understatement, the drift has only been in one direction, and that direction has been in favor of the notion that there is a separate Ukraine that deserves to have a Ukrainian state. Okay, so let's bring Putin into this. How has his thinking evolved here? Because he was, I guess he came back in 2012, correct me if I'm wrong, and I mean, there's a kind of crazy-making degree of unreality to his politics, right? I mean, this, this is a quasi-fascist regime. Maybe it's just appropriate to just call it a fascist regime. It's definitely a single-party state that, on your account, uh, you know, which I, I agree with, is engaged in an, an imperialistic war against a democracy, and yet is framed rather often from Putin's side as a, as a war of denazification of Ukraine, right? Like, so he's the good guy going against the Nazis. Uh, it's probably it's inconvenient for that thesis that uh, the president of Ukraine is Jewish, but you know that's really not an obstacle to the claim. And while I haven't noticed many high-profile people on our side dignify the Nazi part of it, actually there is a, at least one exception to that. There's something happening in America in fairly high-profile right-of-center or even centrist circles where the perversity of Putin's framing is not only not noticed, it is denied, at least implicitly. I mean, it's just, well, I'll bring in one specific claim here just so that you have something to react to. But for instance, I noticed the economist at Columbia, Jeffrey Sachs, on some podcast talking about this. And it's hard to imagine the Kremlin not liking anything he said, right? I mean, he, he was essentially said that the U.S. and NATO have been provocative all along and that the, the off-ramp for Russia was always obvious. We just have to declare the neutrality of Ukraine and give an assurance that they'll never join NATO because that obviously impinges on Russia's core security concerns. How would we feel if, you know, we had a Russian client state in Mexico or Canada? Yeah, and there are many people saying things like this. And I mean, one, one thing that's perverse about that, which I'll just point out before you give me the rest, but I mean, the, immediately what strikes me as perverse is that it concedes that we are the moral equivalent of Russian despotism, right? And, and that the spread of democracy is no better than the spread of fascism. If you try to flip things around in that way, it's just, you know, the, who's to say anything is better than anything else the, in terms of spreading a political orientation on the, over the, the surface of the earth. And that's just so dishonest you know, and, and ethically upside down that I, it's, it's just amazing to see academics in, in America talking that way. You, you know, this is something you speak about in your book. I mean, this 
I think you call it, you know, schizo-fascism, the, the, the condition in which fascists themselves are claiming to be at war with fascists and Nazis, and it's pretty much pure fiction. Oh, thanks. thanks for mentioning that. The, 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 book, the book in question is now Road to Unfreedom, mm. where I do a very careful and slow dissection of all of this um, on the basis of the Russian primary sources, on the basis of everything that Putin said that I could track down over the period of, of his two presidencies. And in you know, starting thinking of your question, it's clear that there was a kind of evolution with Putin. Putin, number one, his first couple terms in office, was, was perhaps sincerely trying to carry out what he called a dictatorship of the law and, and centralized power. But it turned out that in centralizing power and doing away with the other oligarchs, he and his, the people around him just became the chief oligarchs. So what, what Putin ends up with is a dysfunctional state, the most interesting feature of which is the extreme economic inequality. And, and that is a point which is really worth dwelling on for a minute, because it's only when you have the kind of power that he has and the kind of money that he has that you're allowed to get away with the sort of lunatic ideas that he expresses. If, I mean, it's, it may seem like a simple thing, but the fact that he's been in power for 20 years and controls the five television networks and has lots of money to spread around among influential people around the world. Without those things, I mean, he's just a guy on a street corner, you know, probably with a pretty tattered looking soapbox. Because his, his ideas in themselves are, are, not, are neither original nor, nor particularly convincing. But anyway, my point was that in Putin's stage two, when he comes back, with the, with, he's recognized that he can't make the, the Russian state function or at least making it function is inconsistent with him being the chief oligarch and being able to give his friends billions of dollars if he wants to. And so he moves to a politics of spectacle, where, of course, Russia is always right, whether it's um, intervening in Ukraine in 2014 or intervening in Syria in 2015, where everything becomes a kind of show where Russia is always innocent and the other side is, is, is always to blame. And he develops, as from about 2011 forward, ideas about how Russia doesn't have to follow the rules because Russia has a special destiny and Russia has a special mission and Russia has a special civilization and no one else can force understand this, but Russia has the right to do whatever it likes. And, you know, this is this fundamental challenge to international order, you know, Western, non-Western, any kind of order. He's been espousing for about a decade. He made it very clear on September 30th, talking about the annexations when he said, what are the rules? Who made up the rules? Russia has a millennial mission, right? And, and uh, these ideas are already more than tinged with fascism. A person that he cites regularly and who probably by no coincidence he also cited on September 30th this year, Ivan Ilin, is the chief Russian fascist thinker. And he became essentially the house philosopher. Putin was studying him all of the time. But not only him, contemporary Russian fascists began to get airtime on television and became part of the mainstream Russian discussion. And which, which leads me to, I mean, the thing about the schizofascism. Actually, Tim, can you just define fascism? Yeah. Fascism is the idea that it's not rationality that's the basis on which we build politics. It is will and imagination, that rules are not the basis upon which we interact. We interact on the basis of strength. Strength is always proven as a matter of practice. Therefore, endless conflict is entirely normal. And given all of that, politics begins not with any kind of mutual recognition, 
but with the choice of an enemy. When I choose my enemy, then I know who I am. And the moment that I've chosen an enemy, that's when politics can actually begin. And that that takes you pretty far, actually, towards understanding the Russian attitude towards Ukraine. Mm. Because one of the problems with, with Putin's rule is that he has no definition of Russia at all. He has no notion of what the future of Russia will be, nor can he, from the state of oligarchy. Therefore, Russia is defined as the anti-Ukraine, and it takes, it, ta- it takes this arbitrary choice of an enemy in order to give meaning, which is also related to NATO. Now, I mean, I'm just going to be very straightforward about this. They're not a- Russia is not afraid of NATO at all. Had they been afraid of NATO, they certainly wouldn't have undertaken an invasion like this, right? And had they been afraid of NATO, they wouldn't be moving the, 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 the bulk of their troops from the actual NATO borders in order to fight in Ukraine, which is what Mm. they have done. They're not afraid of a NATO invasion. They've never been afraid of a NATO invasion. This is a giant guilt-making factory. They're not afraid that NATO is going to invade them. Putin himself, until very late in the day, did not say anything to the effect that he was afraid of NATO. This is something he came up rather late so that we could could have a guilt trap for, for ourselves. I mean, your, your, point, your point about it not, it, there being a difference between spreading democracy and not spreading democracy is well taken. But I think perhaps an even more fundamental point is that NATO, it's not that NATO or the European Union in large, NATO and the European Union take on new members when sovereign states, backed by their populations, who express themselves in democratic elections, choose to join those institutions. The, the reasons why Poland is in the European Union or, 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 or NATO, do not have to do with Brussels or Washington. They fundamentally have to do with the Poles. And the reasons why Ukraine would like to join institutions doesn't have to do with Brussels or Washington. It has to do with the, the lived experience of, of the Ukrainians themselves. And it seems to me that, if anything, that's an even more fundamental difference, that what Russia is trying to do is expand an, an, an order illegally by force, whereas the European Union and NATO take on new members when independent states choose to join them. Yeah, well, let's cycle on that point one more time because it's, I think it's crucial. So you're saying that Putin and Russia have no fear of invasion from the West, right? I mean, it, it seems completely crazy to me that, that, that any Western power would want to invade Russia, but a person could be forgiven for believing that Putin might believe such a thing would be possible and that he therefore would want Ukraine as a buffer between him and an antagonistic Europe. But you're saying that's just not the case. Well, that, that option was available to Putin and he chose not to take it. The um, Ukraine had agreed to Russian, base, Russian bases on the Black Sea for, for decades when Russia invaded in 2014. When Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014, it was, it was giving up, as a result of its own decision, the possibility of a friendly Ukrainian buffer to the West. When you invade a country, you no longer have the option of treating it as a friendly buffer. When you invade a country, you're making an enemy of it. That was a choice that Moscow made on its own. Um, one can decide that it was a mistake or not a mistake, but that option was available. They have pushed Ukraine to the West again and again with their own decisions. Before 2014, a majority of Ukrainians were against joining NATO. After Russia invaded in 2014, a majority of Ukrainians unsurprisingly decided that they were in favor of joining NATO. That's a result of Russia's choices. So 
that option was there, but that's not what they want. What they want to be able to, I mean, and this is what they say openly, day in, day out, on television, from the foreign ministry, from the president's office, from the Security Council, day in and day out, what they say, the commander-in-chief of the operation just said it yesterday, what they say is they want a Ukraine where they are in control. And that's something completely different. That means invading the country, occupying it, replacing its leadership with someone else. Um, that's not a friendly buffer. That's, you know, that's a genocidal aspiration. And that's what they care about. Again, to repeat the point, if they cared about security from NATO, um, which they don't, but if they cared about security from NATO, they would be dispersing their armed forces around the Finnish border, um, around the Polish border. They'd be concerned about places like that. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they are throwing an absurd, an obscene amount of their available firepower into the project of destroying Ukraine as a country, which I'm just going to take a big step back here, makes zero geopolitical sense. It is weakening Russia extraordinarily. And the reason I'm taking a big step back is that one of the assumptions that we're making in this conversation, or at least one of the assumptions that's made in the views that you're presenting, is that Putin actually cares about the interests of Russia. I think mm-hmm. that's, a, that, that's an assumption which should be made explicit and questioned. Because I see, I see very little reason to think that Putin is a geopolitician who cares at all about the interests of Russia. If he were, he would be much more concerned about the fact that there is a great power on Russia's border, which in fact does have designs, unlike the United States, on Russian resources, mm. um, which unlike the United States, invests more in the Asian part of Russia than Russia does itself, and that is China. But rather than being concerned about China, what Putin has done with his entire anti-Western turn is to create a situation in which future rulers of Russia will have little choice but to be vassals of China. And the invasion of Ukraine has only accelerated this process. Troops that might have been defending the border with Russia have been brought west to fight a losing and pointless war in Ukraine, while Beijing just watches as the power relationship with Russia, which was already very much in its favor, accelerates to the point where it's just hard to imagine that Russia is going to be able to get out from under it. A a Russian leader who cared about geopolitics, who cared about Russian interests, would be balancing between the West and Russia. It is geopolitically absolutely idiotic to go so far in one direction that you can't come back. But that's what Putin has done. I don't think he's an idiot. I think he simply doesn't care about Russian interests. So what does he care about? He cares about dying in bed. He cares Mm. about being a legacy. I mean, when we, I appreciate your earlier questions about Putin, which, you know, lead in profound directions, which I haven't always been able to follow in my answers. We have to think of this person as someone who's been in power for the lifetimes of many people who who live in Russia. Many people in Russia can't remember anyone else. This is someone who's been in power for, you know, the, the entirety, for, you know, the entirety of this, of this century. This is someone who is on a classical, you know, as described by Plato, as described by Shakespeare tyrannical trajectory where at a certain point, he's no longer able to hear the advice of others. At a certain point, his own fantasies start to become realer than the reality around him. I think there's no question that his obsession with Ukraine is real. I think he really thinks something along the lines of his historically weird fantasies that he, that he, that he projects. I think he really thinks that somehow, somewhere, there really are Ukrainians down there who who believe that they want to be invaded by him. But I, I think that that is a classical, tyrannical mistake. And he is doing that thing that tyrants do when they're in power for too long, which is they commit state resources to their own fantasies. 
that's the tragedy of tyranny, and that's that's where Putin is right now. So right now he's in the grip he's in the grip of a fantasy which doesn't have anything to do with interests or with geopolitics. I think if we take a deep breath and look coldly at Russia's geopolitical position, we can generally agree that this has been an asinine move. He is in the grip of something which can't be reduced to interests or it or doesn't have much to do with the state. What he thought he was doing in invading Ukraine was leaving a legacy. What he thought he was doing in invading Ukraine was leaving, leaving an indelible mark, his own mark on history, where he would be remembered as the person who united what he thinks of as the Russian lands, as Peter the Great did, as Catherine the Great did. I think that's what he thinks he was doing. He's not going to be able to do that um, because the world is just not the way that he thinks the world is. But I think that's what, that's what has him in its grip. Well, he's also been doing a bit more than that in that he's been launching a a larger war, mostly a, a cyber war against Western freedom, really. I mean, there's just, just there's been this, I believe you call it a, a hybrid warfare uh, at various points where, you know, the, the goal seems to be to destabilize democracies generally. Perhaps now is a good moment to say something about that and how that what we've what we've seen of that since I guess you know 2014 and in, in the first war in Ukraine. I, I appreciate that question. And I appreciate your earlier remark about there being a difference between democracy and other systems. And I guess I rather wish that in these conversations, which are which you know which seem to be about Putin, I don't mean yours and mine. I mean the kinds of discussions that you are refereeing here. Mm. People would admit like which of three positions they take, because I think there are a lot of people out there who just like fascism. And I think they should just up and own it that they like fascism, and that's why they like Putin. And I think that would clarify matters. I think a second position is, I really don't believe in anything. I'm a complete nihilist. I have no preference between democracy and other things. Mm-hmm. In that position, you can also say, well, Putin is fine because there is no truth, there are no values, yada, yada, right? And then there's a third position. I'm sure there are others, but there's a third position which says, actually, people seem to like to vote, whether they're in Iran or whether they're in Russia or whether they're in Portland, Oregon, they seem to like to vote. And uh, and, in countries where people are able to vote and are represented, seem to be peaceful and prosperous and freer, and people seem to live lives where they're more satisfied and so on, right? I mean, I think it would be kind of like, in, in some way, this discussion about Putin is a proxy for all of that. Where the people who are slightly afraid to say, yeah, I'm a fascist, or yeah, I'm a nihilist, um, are willing to say, well, I think maybe Putin's okay, or I think maybe what's happening here mm. is is fine. And now, Sam, I've forgotten where you went. Well, yeah, well, actually, let me let me add one more cohort there, because it's, I guess it's, it's nihilist adjacent, but it would, uh, they, they certainly wouldn't think of themselves as nihilists. And these are all the people, you know, most of whom are in, in Trumpistan. And so I think I'm talking about you know, maybe 40% of American society who think that more or less everything said about Russia attempting to destabilize democracy, in, in particular our own, and especially their attempt to hack the 2016 presidential election, amounted to a, a lie. You know, it's just a pure confection of the Democratic Party. Wherever it is true, you know, even if some are going to concede that some aspects of those allegations are true. It's unimportant because we do the same thing to other countries, right? I mean, this is this you know this came out explicitly when when Trump himself said, "Well, you think we're, our hands are so clean? You know, we we've been pretty bad too, right?" And so it, so we had the the spectacle of a sitting U.S. president who said he trusted Putin and his intelligence services 
over his own intelligence services. And something like half the country was happy to go with that. And, and they think that basically, I mean, this all gets summarized under the rubric of the, the Russia collusion hoax, right? If you're like anywhere right of center now, the, all you need to say is the Russia collusion hoax to discredit any concern about Russia's misinformation campaign that's happened on you know, dozens of fronts for years, which has created a, a, a politics of unreality within our own society in large part. So anyway, I, I get, you know, that we might call that nihilistic, but I think most of these people think that they're not nihilists. They, they, they want to put American interests first. They want us to be essentially, they want us to pull back from our engagement with a, a fairly crazy world and close our borders. And they want to get back to the good things of making America great again. You know, so that's not nihilism. It's, it's a kind of delusion. And it's a complete loss of contact with certain moral imperatives of the moment, I would say. But it's, um, I think it is a different cohort. And, it, and there's a, a fair amount of evidence at th- this point that Russia has had more than a little bit to do with creating these perceptions. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a deep philosophical consistency here. Because what happens in, in Russian domestic politics is that Putin finds himself in a place where he can't meaningfully promise Russians a, a better future. And one of the moves he makes at that point very effectively, um, helped by a very intelligent propagandist called Vladislav Surkov, is to argue that, well, actually, things may seem lousy in Russia, and maybe we close down your small business for no reason, and maybe there's very little social mobility, and maybe you know wealth is horribly badly distributed, and maybe your vote doesn't really count. But if you look around the world, the, the Putin line, it's actually all the same everywhere. It's the same in Britain. It's the same in the United States. And so the, the, way, the, the, the move that their propaganda makes is very different from the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union actually still said there are good things and we're moving towards those good things. That might have been a lie, but it was a lie in a world where there was still truth. What, what the Putin propaganda does is that it says, look, nothing's really any good. Russia's rotten. We admit it. But Britain is just as bad and America's just as bad. And then they just hit on the things which are bad about us, and they put them right in the center, and they make them the absolute essence of our countries. So that is a kind of programmatic nihilism. It's, it's a way to stay in power when you can no longer actually operate a state in the way that it's normally thought of as being beneficial to, to people. And I, so that, that connects with where we are in our politics, where you know, we begin to doubt that the state can do things for us or that the state represents us, and then we are captured. And I'm not saying that the Russians are, are the only ones responsible for this. I'm saying what the Russians are doing is they're, they're pushing forward, like they're the avant-garde in this general tendency to say, well, who knows whether our system is better than their system, right? Who knows whether it was better, you know, whether Russia does this and we do all this. And so when Trump says, you know, I, I trust their services more than our services, he has, a good, he has good reason to trust their services because his services did much more for him than our services ever could do. But when Americans follow that and they say, well, it's kind of all the same, then that's not just you know, adjacent to nihilism. That actually is nihilism because what you're doing when you reason that way is you're saying, well, no matter how bad something is, it's probably just as bad somewhere else. And it, you can't really build up a democracy on that basis. I mean, uh, to build up a democracy, you have to have some notion that you have 
that, that you can improve things, that some values are real, you know, that law, that law does matter, that we can organize ourselves in ways that are, that are better than other ways. And, um, you know, in, at the practical level, you're speaking of the right here, but at the practical level, this kind of posture also turns up on the left mm. where, you know, the existence of Russia just becomes um, an occasion to point out that America did things which, are, which was bad. And of course we did, right? But that doesn't actually answer the question. I mean, if, you know, if people, if, 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 if Russia is committing a genocide in Ukraine and we say, well, yes, we did terrible things in Iraq. Okay, that's fine. That means that, you know, countries shouldn't carry out illegal wars. So there's a, you, there's a principle there. Um, and I'm happy to defend that principle. But the way it goes illogically, and I think politically destructively, is for people to say, well, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, as though that were dispositive. And that, that just brings us to this nihilism. And with the nihilism, Russia wins because they're not aiming for anything else. They don't really need for us to believe that the Ukrainians are, are, are Nazis, right? They obviously don't believe that themselves. They don't really need for us to believe that Ukraine doesn't exist. They just need for us to be somewhere in no, they just need for us to be in nowhere land where we shrug our shoulders and we say, well, who knows, you know, maybe, maybe we did something like that at some point. That's all they're aiming for. That's really all they're aiming for. And unfortunately, they're getting a lot of it. Okay. Well, I, I want to talk, I know you have a hard stop in about 40 minutes now, so I, I don't want us to be short on time to address the nuclear elephant in the room, right? So, so many people think that we are running an intolerable risk by not doing everything we could possibly do to de-escalate the situation. I want to give you some examples of this from what I've seen on social media, and I want, I want us to analyze them, because if you're not someone who's been, as you have been, really in the weeds of, of Ukrainian and Russian history and politics, it's easy to think, well, there's got to be a reason why Ukraine is not a, a NATO state, right? And, and we're, we're not treaty bound to defend it like it is one. It's not, therefore, a core American national interest. So how is it that we are not doing everything we can do to mollify Putin at this point, right? I mean, because this is a situation of, of nuclear blackmail. It even gets worse somehow if we exceed to the idea that, you know, he doesn't even have Russia's interest at heart. He's just a tyrant who's psychologically unraveling. And he's given some speeches of late which suggest a kind of unraveling of a quasi-religious sort. He gave one speech about a month ago where he sounded practically like a jihadist in terms of his, you know, the, the, other, the otherworldliness that was creeping into his claims. So why are we just not doing everything we can to get off this ride? And so I'll give you just a few examples of this. The venture capitalist David Sachs has been making a lot of noise about this, and he, he wrote a, an op-ed in Newsweek recently, and this is a quote, The online mob has decided that any support for a negotiated settlement, even proposals that Zelensky himself appeared to support at the beginning of the war, is tantamount to taking Russia's side, denouncing voices of compromise and restraint as Putin apologists. This removes them from acceptable discourse and shrinks the Overton window to those advocating the total defeat of Russia and an end to Putin's regime, even if it risks World War III. Anyone who suggests that NATO expansion could have been a contributing factor to the current Ukraine crisis, or that the sanctions imposed on Russia are not working and have backfired on a soon-to-be-shivering Europe, or even that the U.S. must prioritize avoiding a world war with a nuclear-armed Russia is denounced as a Putin stooge. So let's, let's take that. What is 
How would you respond to that? Well, I mean, first of all, I really don't like arguments where the person who's making the argument is saying, hey, look, the whole internet, it's unreasonable and I'm reasonable. I mean, <laughs> I don't, I, the, the, we need to talk about the world and not about like internet mobs that we invent. I certainly see in, in, in the time I spend on the internet, I certainly see a lot of internet mobs that are making exactly the opposite case. I mean, in, in at least the, where I have to spend time, mm-hmm. there are an awful lot of bots and trolls making exactly the opposite kind of arguments, including the kinds of arguments which say that Ukrainians deserve to be exterminated. So, I mean, let's let's talk about the world and not talk about the internet mob that we you know, might be conjuring for the purpose of creating the straw man. Number one, this whole business of nuclear war is basically a way for Americans to make this about us. We have a really hard time having a situation be fundamentally not about us. That when we start talking about nuclear war, then we're thinking about like an intercontinental ballistic missile exchange, and then suddenly we get to be afraid. And when we get to be afraid, that means we have to stop thinking, or we have, we have the right to not think about the Ukrainians who the Russians are trying to freeze, about the torture chambers that are discovered everywhere Ukraine deoccupies territory, about the death pits that are discovered everywhere Ukraine occupies territory, about the four million Ukrainian citizens, one-tenth of the population that have been forcibly deported to Russia. Once we start thinking, oh, we have the right to be afraid, then we can stop thinking about them. And there isn't going to be that kind of war. There is no reason to think there's going to be that kind of war. The fact that Putin talks about it is one thing, but that, that doesn't mean there's a probability of it. And, and I, mm. one, well, although, although, Tim, in, in defense of some of this hysteria, we have our own president, now President Biden, octogenarian that he is, saying some fairly loose things about our being closer to Armageddon than we have been since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm going to try to talk about the way I think things actually are. Mm. That, I mean, the, the U.S. government tried to, to walk that back, and I think properly so. And I think that was meant as part of deterrence, and deterrence is one of the many reasons why this sort of thing is very, very unlikely to happen. The second thing I wanted to say is that, well, so to end that thought, the Russians aren't afraid of nuclear war. And we might want to just pay attention to that. The Russian people are not afraid of nuclear war. That's not a thing in Russia at all. And one might think that if there was some chance that like some kind of cataclysm was about to be unleashed, the Russian people would have some kind of hint about it. But they don't. They're afraid of other things. They're afraid of losing the war. They're afraid of mobilization. They're afraid of chaos. But they're not afraid of nuclear war. And I think that's probably something that we should keep in mind. And then, you know, in number two, insofar as there's a risk of nuclear war, it's the risk that a small nuclear device will be detonated by Russia in Ukraine. And Ukrainians have been trying very hard for the last seven months to resist that nuclear blackmail. And I think it's been to everyone's great benefit that they have. And I think, and this is point number three, it's very important to recognize that giving in to nuclear blackmail makes nuclear war much, much more likely. Hmm that you say that anyone who has nuclear weapons is allowed to, you know, basically put you on a stick and shake you around like a puppet. The minute you you give that power to the nuclear powers, what you're doing is you're encouraging the same nuclear powers to do it again next time, because why not? But you're also encouraging potentially nuclear powered dictatorships to get nuclear weapons so that they can have that same power, which you've just given them by giving them to nuclear blackmail. And you're essentially requiring the rest of the world to build nuclear weapons because by conceding to nuclear blackmail, you've taught everyone in the world from Ukraine forward that the only way to defend themselves is by themselves having nuclear weapons. So if you give into nuclear blackmail, 
you're creating a much more nuclearized world and you're creating the likelihood of scenarios where nuclear weapons will be used. So, I mean, the basic underlying logical problem here is that nuclear blackmail is bad and it should not be given, it should not be given into because that makes nuclear war more likely than it would be otherwise. Yeah, yeah, that's a point I made, albeit briefly, on Twitter in response to Max Tegmark claiming to have analyzed the situation and, and coming up with a, I think it was a one-sixth chance of World War III as a result of what we're doing and not doing now. The thing I pointed out is that you're, that's only one, even if that, even if that was true, I'm, I'm not actually conceding the assumptions he used in his analysis, but it seemed that he was only analyzing one side of the decision tree. You also have to analyze the side that you just described, which is what what are the knock-on effects of giving in to nuclear blackmail? And what does that do to the, the risk of nuclear wars in the future, even the, the fairly near future? All right, let me, let me give you another case study in um, confusion or useful idiocy, or it is, it's going to be somewhere on that spectrum. Elon Musk floated the following ideas on Twitter to the applause and, and consternation of many, many people. It's four points. These are the four. One, redo elections in the annexed regions under UN supervision. Russia leaves if that is the will of the people. Two, Crimea formally part of Russia as it has been since 1783 until Khrushchev's mistake. Three, water supply to Crimea assured. Four, Ukraine remains neutral. And then he closes with, what is wrong with each of these points? Please tell me if there's something wrong with each of these points. The first one, redo elections in the annexed regions under UN supervision. Russia leaves if that is the will of the people. Well, I mean, the, the fundam- I'll answer, but the fundamental thing which is wrong with all of this is that the, the elections and everything else can only take place under the auspices of a sovereign state. You don't invade someone. You know, when, when right now Canada is undergoing a process of redistricting and they're sending out their experts to, to, to check everything. If we, we don't invade Ottawa in order to tell them how and when they should carry out their elections, and the notion of Russia invading Ukraine and then, and then holding an election mm-hmm. under anyone's auspices to decide whether or not that's a good thing is just palpably ridiculous. The basic assumption, you know, all of this assumes that Ukraine is not really a state and that people can do whatever they want with it, and that one country, Russia, can invade, and then other people from California or wherever can decide you know, what kind of elections they're run. Ukraine was having, they were running elections all perfectly well on their own you know, the entire time. And when mm-hmm. they had problems with elections, they handled them themselves without anyone else's help, which is kind of more than we can say. And it's certainly more than Russia can say. They've never had a peaceful transition of power after a democratic election. So how about we start from the presumption that Ukraine should be allowed to carry out elections by itself, which means that the Russians can't be there because you can't have elections in your own country when another country is occupying your territory. The second thing I find interesting about this is, so I made the point about water, but I could make the point about water because I'm a historian of Ukraine, right? And I know about, like, I've read the documents around the transfer of, of Soviet, of Crimea to Soviet Ukraine in 1954. With all due respect to Elon Musk, who knows a lot about a lot of things and is incredibly impressive in a lot of domains, I think there is close to 0% chance that he was aware himself about the issue of water supply to Crimea. That that point is an obsession of the Russians, um, who do know that there's no way to supply 
water to Crimea from Russia, and that the only way to do it is really through Ukraine. And that makes these four points, um, uh, the, let me put it this way, it makes mm. the origin of these four points slightly suspicious, because mm. I just don't see where he would have come up with that. And then we've already talked about 1783 and the always. It's cr- Catherine the Great, the German, the German empress of the multinational Russian empire, which no longer exists and hasn't existed for more, for more than a century, did defeat the Crimean Hanat, and then she declared that the place was New Russia, much the same way that James Cook declared that part of Australia was um, New New Wales, or that we decided that you know North a part of North America was New England. This idea that it's new means that you can dismiss everything that came before, and that no one who was there before actually actually matters. It's not true. Crimea has its own history, and we haven't really talked about it much. But Ukraine also has its its own history. These four points come from a very clear imperial perspective in which the, the history of the peoples is denied, but most fundamentally, it's, they treat Ukraine as though Ukraine were not really a country. And so mm. you know, that's the problem. Isn't there another problem with point one? If, if you're going to redo elections in the annexed regions under UN supervision, isn't it somehow inconvenient that millions of people have been forcibly removed from those regions and taken to Russia? That's, I mean, it's a, it's it's an excellent point. I mean, for by Russia's own count, it's four million people, which is one tenth of the population. Russia is claiming to have forcibly deported hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian children with the purpose of of dispersing them in the Russian population and Russifying them, which is which is um, legally speaking genocide. So yes, of course, that's a problem. It, it, any you know, if Ukraine were holding elections on its own territory, presumably Ukraine would wait until as many people as possible could return. But I think the more fundamental point is you don't really hold elections, you know, in, in these kinds of conditions where another mm. country is occupying your country. There's more there's more to say about there's more to say about this this Elon Musk stuff for sure. One thing I've really been surprised by is how he's it turns out that he's not really in favor of freedom of speech. I mean I, I thought I thought that one thing that, that group, you know, at least said that it was for was freedom of speech, but it turns out that He's not in favor of Ukrainians using his communications technology in their own country if that seems to threaten another country where there is zero freedom of speech. It seems to me that if one cared about freedom of speech, the first thing one would point out is that Russia is an extraordinary example of the deprivation of, of freedom of speech. And what Ukraine is fighting for, among mm. many other things, is the right to free expression. And they're doing so quite successfully. So if one actually thought that freedom of speech were a value, one would be doing anything one could to make sure that Ukraine could restore freedom of speech to its entire sovereign territory. I also find it somewhat mystifying that, as this comes out of his point four, Ukraine remains neutral. I find it mystifying that so many people accept this idea that, at least implicitly, that Putin and Russia could or should be in a position to say that a sovereign democracy can or can't join NATO or align itself with the EU in any way that it wants. I mean, how is it that we we have gotten into the business of accepting that ultimatum uh, without comment? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, quite, it's quite weird. You know, people who say, I'm an anti-imperialist and I want to sit down with the Russians to carve up another country, or I want to sit, I'm an anti-imperialist, so I'm going to sit down with the Russians to decide what a small country can or cannot do. Hmm. That's imperialism, pure, pure and simple. Um, I, you know, whether Ukraine wants to be neutral or wants to join NATO or you know wants to join some alliance with Russia should be up to the Ukrainians. That's that's entirely their business. It's not our business. It's not the Russians' business. It's nobody's business except theirs. And 
they're perfectly capable of judging their security environment and coming to whatever decision seems most reasonable to them. So, you know, that that's I mean, that's just the way things are. And I I don't really understand why people would think that they can go against the, the I mean, this is there's a there are two levels of which this is, this is imperialist. The first is that it doesn't accept that there's really a Ukrainian state. And the second is that it, it doesn't accept that there really are Ukrainian people. You know, the Ukrainian people have good reason for the views that they hold, which are that they would be safer under some kind of Western security umbrella. Mm. And the reason is that they've been invaded twice by their Eastern neighbor, the second time in what was openly avowed to be a war of destruction of their nation and is shaping up to be exactly, exactly that. The democratically, you know, Ukraine is a democratic country in the sense that people are used to having their voices heard. And on these questions, there are there is public opinion polls, there are clearly visible trends. And many people now in Ukraine would like to join the European Union. That's been true for more than a decade. It's for the last few years, and especially since this invasion, a large majority wants to join NATO. It seems to me that if they want to try to join NATO, that's up to them, you know, and and, and then you know, other NATO countries can decide. But if Ukraine's a sovereign country and it has a democratic government and it represents its people's view. Then what that government is going to be trying to do is join the European Union and join NATO. And if we really are in favor of democracy and people having their voices heard, then we would say, well, that's actually quite normal. That's what we would expect to happen. Okay, I'm going to give you one more from social media because um, this goes over some similar ground. But this, this just will give you and our listeners a sense that many of the people holding these opinions are, are very supportive of Ukraine, but they're just they have been led to accept Putin's framing of all of this to a degree that should be surprising based on everything you have said thus far. So this is from from Bill Ackman, who I, who I don't know. I know the others we've mentioned so far, but Bill Ackman's an, an investor, and he wrote the following on Twitter. Since the Ukraine war commenced, I have been 110% in support of Ukraine, urging the U.S. to accelerate the delivery of more and better weapons and more financial support. I've also contributed $12 million of direct philanthropic support and $10 million of indirect support to groups assisting Ukraine. Yesterday, I suggested that a reasonable peace settlement might be a return to the borders of February 24th, a Marshall Plan to rebuild Ukraine, and Ukraine's decision to not join NATO. Then the knives came out. I was accused of being an appeaser and worse. I ask, is Ukraine better off in a continued prolonged war? that leads to thousands more Ukrainian deaths and the leveling of the country? Or does some kind of negotiated settlement make sense? Is it realistic that Russia will simply withdraw from the Donbass and Crimea, as some have suggested is the only acceptable outcome? I am by no means an expert. It just saddens me to see death and destruction with no apparent end date or opportunity for resolution. What does winning mean if the war is not resolved by a negotiated settlement? How can it end? In a negotiated settlement, both parties must concede something or there is no opportunity for resolution. What is the least that both parties can concede that is acceptable for both? What am I missing in my analysis? What better ideas do you have? So uh, I don't know if you have anything new to say, given that yeah, pass on it. I want to make a really, but first of all, I, I, I want to I thank, thank the gentleman for what he's done to support Ukraine with his voice about weapons and, and, with, the, and with the donations. It's, it's a poor country, and that amount of money makes a huge difference. And I want to I want to acknowledge that first of all. I, I, the point I want to make is a very conservative one, 
I'm not a military historian. I, I've done a lot of reading of military history. I'm a historian of political atrocity, which means that I've, I've done a fair amount of work, at least in the secondary sources around battlefield history, and I have a lot of respect for the people who do it. I, I've been really struck in this debate how much we've suffered as a country from the decline of, of old-fashioned battlefield military history, because a lot of the answers, you know, the, the, the questions that he's posing, the answers come from that realm of, of military history. We've, we've lost the ability to understand that the battlefield has a kind of autonomy and, and, has, and has some rules of its own. And when we, we look at the war, we tend to jump right away to the categories which are most comfortable to us, which in this moment, in this culture, tend to be psychological categories, hence people immediately go into what's in Putin's mind and so on. But that isn't necessarily the most important thing. In, inside a war, what's often important is the war itself. And what's happening inside the war itself is that Russia started from basically untenable premises and has now gotten itself into an untenable position. And the Ukrainians are quite right to think that their negotiating position will be better after they've won the war. Or to put it less ambitiously, their negotiating position will be better after they've taken back more of their territory. So the, the pro, I mean, answering the question at the end, which maybe was rhetorical, what's wrong is not trusting the judgment of the people who are actually fighting the war and taking the casualties themselves. What's wrong is not listening you know, to the overwhelming Ukrainian public opinion, which is around 90% or more, which says that the war should be prosecuted, that Zelensky is doing a good job, and that the war is about restoring Ukrainian sovereign territory. By the way, the, the, the borders of February 24th is a meaningless category. Russia's occupation of Ukraine is illegal. Hmm. There are between Russia and Ukraine, except the borders of December 1991. So I, I, it, people shouldn't kind of smuggle that in as a sort of legal concept because it isn't. But anyway, that's the answer to my question. The, the, to his question, the answer is the battlefield. The Ukrainians think they can win this war, and they actually have really good reason to think that they can win this war. And you get to negotiation when both sides actually think that negotiation is better than war. Right, si- right now, neither side thinks that. And there's not anything that any American can do about that except to help the correct side, the Ukrainians, win. Right now, the announced Russian war goal, and this this comes through over and over and over again, including in statements of the overall commander of the Russian forces in Ukraine, the announced explicit Russian war aim is the destruction of Ukraine as a state. The Ukrainians naturally are going to resist that until we get to a point where the Russians accept that their own war goal is not tenable, the idea of going to the negotiation table is is meaningless. Trying to make the Ukrainians get to the negotiating table at a time when they're winning the war, I think shows a basic misunderstanding of how battle works. It also shows, I think, a kind of disrespect for the Ukrainians and the sacrifices they're making in terms of the values, which I think they've been very good at expressing if if we will listen to them. So that's what's wrong. We all want the war to end. We don't want there to be more suffering. But the, the best way for this war to end is for one side to win, which leads me to another thought. I mean, I think one thing which is really striking about, and this goes back to battlefield, is that people forget how important the category of victory is, that it's not just about being on the right side. You don't just mm. give weapons so that you can like, improve somebody's negotiating position or so you can feel good about yourself. You need to win. The Russians are out there to win, and the Ukrainians are out there to win. And it's pretty important to accept that winning is the way it's going to turn out. The negotiations happen when one side 
realizes that it can't, it's political. When one side realizes political objectives can't be met. And if we want to, going back to escalation and all of this, if we want to reduce the risks of this war, the best way to do it is to help the Ukrainians win this war as quickly as possible. And the Ukrainians quite rightly think that talk about negotiation right now is distracting and counterproductive. Well, I think there are two concerns that surface there, given your response. One is, I think many people assume that a nuclear power, in this case Russia, can't actually afford to lose a conventional war. Um, I'm not sure how they're drawing that conclusion. I mean, they're, they're led to it perhaps by the fact that we have Putin saying some fairly unhinged things about his recourse to nuclear weapons, but people are concerned that it's just untenable to beat Putin in a conventional war because then it becomes rational for him to escalate to the first use of nuclear weapons. Uh, And then there's the second point, which is um, many people perceive this to be a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia. And And there's certainly the fear that Putin and Russia perceive it to be so because we're supplying so much weaponry and intelligence. And so therefore, the risk is when you're talking about winning, the Ukrainians winning a conventional war against Russia, what you're really saying is the U.S. and the EU in some form are are winning a conventional war against Russia. And that seems to put us on the precipice of World War III. I'm puzzled by the second one. I'm actually puzzled by the first one, too. (laughs) First one. I'm doing my best to channel the concerns of... I mean, you've already made, you made the historical point. We lose wars all the time, and the way we lose wars, it gives you a hint as to how Russia will lose this war, which is you pretend that you didn't lose, right? It's a, it's a national tragedy, you know, whatever, but it's not, you don't say you lost the war. That's what Russia does too. That's what everybody does. The Soviet Union also lost a bunch of conventional wars. Mm-hmm. Russia lost the, first, well, lost the first Chechen war. It's not actually clear in the end the Russians are going to win in Syria, partly because of what the Ukrainians are doing. We've lost a bunch of wars. We will continue to lose wars. Sometimes in these wars that nuclear powers lose, they discuss the use of nuclear weapons, but they don't, they don't ever do it because the costs to them are going to be greater than what, they would, than what they would gain. I don't see any reason to think that after, you know, we're now, we've now had, we've now had since 1945 and a very large number of wars involving nuclear powers, and in none of them have nuclear, has nuclear weapons actually been used. But the second thing is, I mean, I guess I don't understand exactly what the, you know, what, this, what the calculation people are making is. Like, I tend to think that everyone gets to, wants to put Putin on the couch and think like, oh, like he's backed against the wall or he needs a, an off-ramp and all these weird metaphors. There's no wall. He can just withdraw his troops from Ukraine and, and you know, he's going to have to have some kind of pivot. He's going to have to change the subject, but there's no wall there. He's not backed up against the wall. And people talk about an, an exit ramp. He doesn't need an exit ramp. You know, he can just, he can just turn around. I mean, What's, what's, what's notable here is that we keep thinking that Putin has some kind of, you know, clearly he's, he's in the grip of his own ideas, but he has been, he's been humiliated a bunch of times here. But he was humiliated when the Ukrainians took back Snake Island. He was humiliated when the Ukrainians sunk the Moskva, which was the flagship of the, of the Russian fleet. He was humiliated when the, the greatest humiliation of this war was when they lost the Battle of Kiev in March, which they just simply could not have believed was possible. They were humiliated when they lost Kharkiv Oblast. Um, they were certainly humiliated when they carried out those referenda, and this is only three weeks ago. And then immediately the Ukrainians started taking back territory in the very oblast, all of the oblasts which Russia had just claimed were part of Russia. In none of those, in none of those instances, did Russia do anything that resembles the kind of escalation which we're talking about. 
And so I just, I just as a matter of the empirical record of this war, I don't understand where the, I just don't understand where the psychological profiling is coming from because it seems to me that when Russia can advance, it advances, and when it can't advance, it retreats. And that's a, a much simpler and more elegant, you know, description of what's actually going on in the war and probably what will continue to go on in in the war. I mean, the reason they're talking about the escalation now is because they're losing, and that's why it's so important for us not to go for it. Hmm. Trying to buy time. I mean, this is an obvious tactic. You know, there's no reason for us to be so dumb. They're they're trying because they're losing. They're and they're, they're they're trying to buy time. They're trying to slow down the weapons deliveries, and so they're pulling out their last two cards, which are make the West afraid of nuclear war, number one, and try to destroy Ukrainian energy infrastructure and water supplies, number two. These are not the tactics of a country that's winning. These are the tactics of a country that's losing. Um, and it takes a certain amount of you know it takes a certain amount. Of I understand of like will and constitution to get through this, but it's a, it's a tiny sliver on our side compared to what the Ukrainians have to do. Well, the proxy war thing, I don't, I really logically, honestly, don't understand it. Who is Russia a proxy for? I mean, a proxy war is when you have uh, no, no. Well, the, Russia's not a proxy for anyone, but but Ukraine is a proxy for us. Right, but then it's not a proxy war. I mean, I, I just I'm. It's not a proxy war. Then it's Russia fighting a war. If Russia's not, it's not a proxy war. It'd be a proxy war if the if Russia and America had their own, you know, puppets. But it's not. I wish people mm. would just stop saying that because Russia's not somebody's proxy. Right. They have chosen to fight this war, and in choosing to fight the war, they choose to take the consequences. When you invade another country, it sometimes does happen that the other country resists. They the fact that they made their war plan on the assumption that the other country wasn't going to exist is not America's fault. It's their fault, and they and they they have to take the consequences for it. It is normal in the world that countries get their weapons from other countries. The Iskander missiles that Russia is dropping on Ukraine every day have chips from Texas Instruments in them. That, that is unfortunately the way the world works. The drones that are now being used to try to starve out the Ukrainian population and deprive it of energy and freeze it to death over the winter are Iranian drones. A lot of the drones that Russia is using itself are based on Israeli protocols. It is normal that armies have technology and weapons that come from other places. That is normal. Mm. The idea that Russia was going to invade Ukraine and not think that the Ukrainians might get weapons from someone else, or someone think, or or or, or hold the completely ahistorical idea that getting weapons from somewhere else is some kind of an escalation, is completely weird. The Soviet Union won the Second World War in large measure thanks to American money and American kit, American materiel, American jeeps, American Studebakers. That's how wars are fought. So I just I don't understand the notion that this is. First of all, it's not a proxy war. Like everyone who says that, like, should just be penalized. Mm. And second, the idea that you, because you arm someone, means that you're a party to the war, that's not. That's just not the way that that it works. We, I mean, the Ukrainians have to win because because they need to protect themselves and their country. That's what winning means. Winning means when the Russians realize that it makes less sense for them to be in Ukraine. You know, from their own point of view, that it makes less sense for them to be there than it would than it would to withdraw. I don't think it's really much more complicated. Than that, you know, we we've just lost some wars very recently, and they didn't have the kinds of consequences which are which are being discussed here. Russia will lose this war; it will have some consequences inside Russia. That is fundamentally the problem of the Russians. There are going to be there already are, in fact, reverberations from this war inside Russia. You know, that's for Russians to deal with. That's not for us to feel guilty about. Russia, just like Ukraine, is a sovereign country. It makes its own decisions. It can deal with the consequences. We got to be really careful of like inserting our agency where other people have plenty of agency. I guess this suggests a final question, which 
may require some psychological insight into to Putin uh, or not. But I guess it, the question is, is how does this war end? And how does its end have implications for the internal politics of Russia? What, what are the consequences of losing this war for Putin politically, domestically? And how might those imagined consequences be motivating him to be less than rational now? Well, so this, it really, it goes back to a point you made earlier, which I really think can't be stressed enough, that democracy really does have its, have its advantages. And, you know, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like health, like you only notice the, the, these advantages when you lose them. Mm. One of the great advantages of democracy is that it has a succession principle. So, you know, you, you, it's not just that you get to express your preferences, it's that you know that whomever you elect, they're going to be replaced by someone else down the line. And what Putin has done, to the great detriment of the Russian state and its interests, has been to remove any plausible succession principle in Russian politics. They have elections, but everyone knows the elections are a joke. He's also created just an entirely, he's just, he's laying waste to the generation that comes next. And this is, by the way, this is really interesting, a difference between Russia and Ukraine, where Putin and his cohort have imprisoned, driven abroad, humiliated all the people in their 30s and 40s who now should be moving up and running the country. Whereas in Ukraine, you've had a very and this is like a bigger difference between Russia and Ukraine than many of the things that people like to fix on. In Ukraine, that generation, the people who were very young when the Soviet Union came to an end and have basically grown up in independent Ukraine and are used to the transfer of power, they're all now in power. I mean, Zelensky and his crew, they're you know, late 30s, early 40s, men and women, kind of across the board, very, very competent. But they've come, they've come to power. In, in, is Navalny in prison in Russia is... Um, a symbol of a larger phenomenon, which is that that generation has been locked up, locked out, kept away, humiliated, not allowed to gain useful experience. I'm saying this because what I'm trying to what I'm trying to make the point of is that Putin has created a problem for Russia. Whether there was this war, whether there wasn't going to be this war, what comes after Putin was always going to be a problem. When you try to rule forever and you institutionally and personally and generationally remove the possibility of good successors, you're creating a tremendous problem. And so, as you say, Russia may be now wading into that problem. This war might accelerate that process. It might not. But I would just stress that by stress that that process was going to have to happen anyway. The tyrants always fall at some point. Often they fall, and again, this is very Shakespearean. Often they fall because of the final mistake they make because they believe in their own illusions, which is what I believe is happening in Russia now. You ask how that will look, I think the answer is already before our eyes because it's already happening. Putin has already been forced to do a number of things which he did not wish to do. He's been forced to make a number of compromises. For example, mobilization. He clearly didn't want to do mobilization. When they announce a partial mobilization, that's clearly a compromise among, among factions. The fact that he couldn't give the announcement about mobilization on the day that he meant to, but had to do it on a different day. These are all just little signs that he's not completely in control. And I think that's a process that we will continue to see. I think this is more like late Stalin. Um, you know, Stalin from 48 to 53 when he dies, he ceases to be the overarching all-powerful figure that he had been earlier. The system becomes more oligarchical day to day. People start having conversations in the hallways when Stalin is not around. I think that's where we are with the Putin regime. 
I don't think it's necessarily going to fall. In fact, I think it's unlikely to fall with some dramatic scene. Um, I could be wrong, of course. I think it's more likely to fall with him kind of receding into, into group rule, where the vicissitudes of the war in Ukraine advance some people and push other people back. We see this infighting going on already. We see it in people having feeling that they have the right to make proclamations about the war, which they wouldn't have done a year ago. The way Medvedev, the former president, talks about the war, the kinds of statements that Prigozhin, who's in charge of a, a big mercenary company, or Kadyrov, who's in charge of the, these Chechen irregulars, the kinds of things that they say about the Ministry of Defense and so on, all of this is a sign of a kind of oligarchical pluralism and a struggle for power, which has already begun. So I think we're watching the answer to, to the question. And ultimately, you know, this was going to happen in Russia, and we have to accept the fact that Putin is no, not always going to be the same leader that we are used to, used to him being. I don't know what's going to come next because the system that, Russia, that Putin has created in Russia is unprecedented. Despite all this talk about Russia being ancient and millennial and so on, the Russian Federation in this form has only existed for 31 years in the present borders. With the, and this particular regime is a, is a product of the last 10 you know, or at most the last 20. So it's hard to say what, what's going to come next precisely because Putin has hollowed out all the possibilities of a natural succession. I would guess there will be a power struggle in which his position during this war is significantly deflated, but he, that he doesn't disappear completely, and that the acceleration of a power struggle after this war is lost will probably continue. I don't see this all building up to some kind of cataclysmic head, though. That's, that's the scenario mm. that I actually see. Mm. Actually, one final question. Uh, what role is religion playing? On the, on the Russian side? Because there's been a lot of lip service, at least, some of it fairly maniacal to some form of Christian apocalyptic framing of, the, of this situation. I mean, he's either to be in, in direct conflict against the, the forces of Satan. Uh, as I said earlier, there was, there was at least one speech where Putin sounded almost like a jihadist. What's your sense of, of his own religious belief system and, and the, the belief system he's, he's leveraging uh, in Russia. Yeah, there's a kind of, there's a kind of sadness around this. I, it may not be what people want to hear about, but like we could talk for a long time about the religious history of Ukraine and Russia and, and Belarus in this, in this region and the, like the catacomb church in Western Ukraine, the, the, the people of the Greek Catholic Church who tried to keep an authentic, independent spiritual life going under the Soviet Union illegally. And we could talk about you know, the irony that Ukraine is actually the center of the Orthodox world, not Russia. And I don't mean just historically, I mean in terms of everyday practice. Uh, Ukrainians actually do go to church, and Russians actually don't, statistically. Mm. Ukrainians are much more likely to be, to be church-going. And you know, I'm not passing judgment on that either way, I'm just noting the, I'm noting the irony that the Russians managed to get, or the Kremlin manages to get a lot of attention to the religious question, but none of these people involved at the top of the Russian state are, are Christian in any meaningful sense. You know, Kadyrov is not a Christian at all. He's obviously a Muslim. But I think your point about jihad is actually very well taken because the, the, form, of, the form of quote unquote Christianity that they advance is actually a sort of Christian fascism. And I don't mean that as a knock on Christianity. Everybody can have their own fascism, but Christian fascism has, its, has a particular feature, um, and the Russian version of it 
shows like this, it's a very, it's a very, it's very simple. It's very interesting that they're, you know, it's not so far away from some American belief systems. It's a lot like interwar Romanian fascism. The idea is that the world is wounded. There's only one source of innocence in this wounded, fractured, fragmented world. That source of innocence is Russia. Russia is the only chance of restoring the world and healing this wound. Therefore, whatever Russia does, although it might seem to be bloody and evil, is in fact good because it serves the larger process of restoring the world. Russia is, is never attacking. It's always defending because fundamentally Russia is the only source of the possibility of restoring this wounded world. And so what it amounts to, and you see this in practice, is a kind of self-worship where Russian soldiers, and there was one on Russian television a few days ago, say, you know, we are there because the Ukrainians represent the satanic West. They are possessed by the devil. And you know, if we can't, if we can't exercise them, then we have to kill them. And this particular soldier went on to say one million, five million, all of them. But this whole idea of demonic possession and Satanism is is, is unfortunately quite important in, in the way the Russians see many, not all Russians, obviously, but some Russians and right up to Putin see the world. Religion matters because religion helps them to define the politics of us and them, where we are the innocent and they are the guilty. They are the ones who have corrupted the world with all their facts and values. We are the ones who are innocent because we can promise a restoration to some kind of primeval simplicity, which is why Putin is obsessed with this baptism back in 988, because it's a symbol of some kind of primeval mm-hmm. innocence. We can do all of that, but we may have to kill all of you along the way. And the jihad analogy, I mean, just using it very roughly, I'm not going to claim to know anything about jihad, but the, when the Russians go into Ukraine, their idea is, we want to convert you because deeply you are really Russian. You just don't know it because you're possessed, right? You just don't know it because you've been corrupted by the West because of all this Satanism. And we're gonna, we have to use force because you're not listening to us when we tell you the basic truth. Which is that you are really Russian, and that you know that that cycle has to lead to killing more and more Ukrainians because obviously none of this makes any sense to the Ukrainians from top to bottom, and of course they know who they are. I would venture to say much more clearly than the Russians know who they are because the Ukrainians aren't defining themselves only against something; they're defining themselves with respect to a future. The Russians are defining themselves only only against something. But ideas like this, I mean, ideas like this, we can talk about them, and they're sort of interesting. But fundamentally, they have to be stopped. Hmm. They have to be stopped. You know, you're not going to argue somebody out of the idea that Ukraine exists because of demonic possession or you know because because of Satanism. Um, not because you know th- these ideas are. You can't argue people out of them because these ideas are of what give sense to their to their struggle, and that struggle will only stop making sense to them when they lose that struggle. You know, and then they will have the opportunity to think again. Hmm. Well, Tim, once again, thank you for your time. It's been been an education. Thank you. I'm so glad we could do this again.